0: You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. All right, well, if you have a Bible, open up to Mark, where we're going through uh, the Gospel of Mark this whole year of 2023. We're on chapter two now, and look forward to continuing this with you. Uh, If you're visiting, hope you'll uh, go through this journey of one of these four biographies of Jesus' life with us. I feel free also to pull the sermon outline out from your bulletin if that helps you to follow along. So I wonder, do you feel like you belong here? Do you feel like you fit in? Do you feel like you're one of the group? I, maybe belonging comes really easily for you. It, I I would say for me it doesn't. I uh, maybe it's being tall. I don't know, or maybe it's being redheaded. I I kind of tend to feel self-conscious a lot, especially when I'm in a crowd. And so if I'm ever like in a circle of people, I'm always trying to like move to the side or kind of hunch my shoulders. Um, I get really self-conscious about sort of. Uh, standing out. Uh, Whenever I go to Home Depot, I feel like everyone else must know more about what all these tools do than I do. Uh, And I I can't believe I'm asking such a dumb question, you know, of the guy. Um, But probably the time recently where I felt the most sense that I didn't fit in was on our mission trip to Sierra Leone last November. Now, um, there was a group of five of us from our church that went and visited some missionaries, a uh, missionary couple that we supported for 20 years, and they were incredibly gracious. The people there are wonderful. The Sierra Leoneans are entirely kind people. This was not about them. This was about, you know, what's going on in my heart. But um, Sierra Leone is an African country where there are not a lot of international community, not a lot of Europeans or Americans. And so there was probably, I don't know, a 1,000 black Africans for every white Person I saw, and when you're six foot three and sweaty and wearing a dumb sun hat, I I stood out a little bit, uh, just <laughs> just a little bit. Um, I got called a European, a Canadian, an American. You know, they 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 were just guessing who I was, but um, they knew I wasn't from there. Uh, I didn't really belong. And one day I kind of just laughed about it, and and I just realized like there's nothing I can wear, there's no phrase I can learn that will cause me to fit in in this community. Now, I could laugh about it because I knew I was going back on a 39-hour plane flight at some point in the next couple <laughs> weeks. Um, but some of you have experienced that lack of belonging in a, a more enduring way, a more lasting way. Maybe some of you experienced it over the holidays. You are with your family and you felt like, I don't fit in with these people. Like, I'm not... I'm not one of them, I don't, I don't share their political views, I don't share their religious views, I don't share their uh, perspective on what's important in this world. I don't feel like I fit in. Right? And that feeling of not belonging can be really heavy. Or maybe you feel that way when you go to work, or maybe you feel that way uh, when you're around different social groups. Maybe you feel that way here this morning. You feel like, I, I, I don't know why that joke was funny that the pastor told. I don't, I don't, I don't fit in with these people at all. Um, Well, all right. Um, I want to talk about a passage from Mark 2 where Jesus shows belonging in a really profound way with this tax collector named Levi and invites him to being part of the community of God in a way that's definitive, it's uh, enduring, and it really sets the frame for what followers of Jesus are going to be like. So we're going to look at the story kind of three times in a row. First of all, we're going to talk about from Levi's perspective. What would it have been like to be invited in, to belong as a decree of Jesus? And then we're going to look at it, uh, flip, the, flip the lens a little bit, and look at it from the, uh, the perspective of the Pharisees. What was it like to sort of be against that? And, and how do we resonate with that? What are ways that we sort of push people out of belonging? And then lastly, we'll look at it from Jesus' perspective. What's it mean to, to invite people into belonging with us? So there's a comfort element, a conviction element, a challenge element. I think all of them will be important for us as we read through this passage together. So let's jump into it in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus went out again by the sea, and the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Levi was a unlikely choice to be a disciple of Jesus because he was a tax collector. Now, if you've been around the church for a while or maybe you've you've heard some of this history before, you know that tax collectors were were hated members of Jewish society because they were traitors to their national people. Uh, They were greedy, they were exploitive, uh, and they caused enormous economic harm to their countrymen. They were traitors because they had chosen to align themselves with the invading armies of Rome rather than their own people. Uh, Levi apparently lived in Capernaum as a small town about 600. It's where a lot of the early chapters of Mark take place. And so everyone in town knew him. He probably had grown up there. And he had chosen to tax for the oppressive invading armies against his cousins, his friends, his siblings, right? Can you imagine how that would play out at Thanksgiving dinner, right? That this is a choice that he'd made. He'd chosen money over family. He'd chosen security over his country, he chosen Rome over God, right? That's the sort of person that Levi was. The fact that he was named Levi probably suggests that he came from a family of Levites, which were the priests in Israel society. So what's a good Jewish boy coming from a priestly family doing, being a tax collector for Rome? That's the sort of person that Levi was. He was every bit the unlikely figure to be a disciple of Jesus. When uh, Israel would talk about the Messiah coming, one of their great hopes was that the Messiah would come and would drive out Rome. And guess who is going to kick out first? The tax collectors, right? We don't love taxes in our society. You probably, some of you here, maybe really begrudge paying your taxes and try to figure out ways, hopefully not to cheat on them, but to, to maximize them. I think it's what people say when they're cheating on them to maximize <laughs> their tax deductions. Um, But at the end of the day, at least it goes to your country, right, that you're a part of. At least there's a democracy that informs some of those decisions. And maybe you don't like them. Maybe you're not happy with some of those decisions. But it's a whole other ballgame when we talked about the taxes on Israel and Rome. This was money that was just extracted from Israel and sent off to a foreign oppressing army. They had no say in it. They saw no benefit from it. It was much more like the mafia shaking someone down than it was a governmental taxation that we would know today. And the the tax collectors were really the face of this oppressive regime. And it was Levi's face that the people of Capernaum saw. Tax collectors traded their reputation, their standing, their character, how people saw them, for money. And that's what Levi had done. For Jesus to call Levi to be his own disciple was a scandal in that world, in that society. uh, Anyone who heard about this story or saw this story would have thought, is that the best Jesus could do, Right? No one who was a good person wanted to follow him? He had to find tax collectors? Did, did he not know what this guy did for a living? No, it says Jesus saw him at his tax booth, right? He, he, found, he found him at the scene of the crime and called him out of it. It wasn't that Levi was hiding something from Jesus. Jesus found him in the midst of the moment of his depravity and called him to follow him. This is a, hopefully a comforting choice for you And for me, a comforting scene, the idea that Jesus sees him in his worst moment and calls him to be a disciple. Someone who makes decisions based on greed, based on selfishness, is seen in that moment by Jesus and loved. Sometimes we think that we have to hide parts of who we are, parts of what we've done from God or from, from at least the church in order to be acceptable to him. But, but Levi's story is a great comfort to us. It shows us that even in the midst of his worst sins against God, he is seen by Jesus and called to be a disciple. Now, um, it's probably hard for us to resonate with why I would call being a tax collector his worst sins. But think about it. If you knew someone who is who is shaking people down for money, who is sending Roman troops to, to either imprison, enslave, or execute tax evaders, people that you are related to, is that a person you'd want to be an elder at your church? No, right? Is that a person you'd look up to for, for, for character guidance or to write down a gospel like Levi did when he wrote the gospel of Matthew? No, of course not. Jesus' call is a scandal even today, right? The idea that this is someone that Jesus would desire to follow him should give us great pause, but also tremendous comfort. That, that if he can call Levi, he can call you and me. I'm using the word call here. Sometimes in church world, we talk about missionaries being called or pastors being called and and that's true and that's good. But in the New Testament, call applies to, to all of us. Anyone who has chosen to follow Christ, it's because he has called you to himself. The call of Jesus in Levi's life is parallel to the call of Jesus in your life, that he invites you to be a follower of his. And if he's gonna call Levi, he can call you too. What's equally remarkable so the fact that Jesus would call Levi is how Levi would respond, that he, he rose and followed him. This implies that, that Levi left the tax booth behind, that, you know, be back in five minutes or maybe never, sign on it, right? That, that he, he left behind this career, this secure source of wealth to go into the unknown of following Jesus. Other apostles, like Peter, will sometimes come back to their vocations. They'll go back to being fishermen at different times in the Gospels. There's no one going back to being a tax collector. Once you leave that behind, you leave that behind. And for Levi, he left it all behind for the sake of following Jesus. And, spoiler alert, Jesus was right. Levi made a great disciple. If for no other reason, than we have the Gospel of Matthew. He had used all his great recording skills and his uh, finely honed tax collector sense of what is important to maintain and preserve to give us things like the Sermon on the Mount and the Great Commission and these wonderful passages in Matthew's Gospel. Um, So how does this passage sort of shape our expectation of who can be a disciple of Jesus? You know, there's a number of aspects of who Levi is, like different parts of it that I'd like you to sort of think about with me in, in an effort for us to, to draw some comfort from this passage, right? There's the immoral part of Matthew, the part that he knew what was right and refused to do it. His sort of sinning with a high hand against God, that Matthew had chosen that life, Levi had chosen that life, and yet Jesus still saw him and loved him and called him. Some of you are sinning in just as egregious ways as Levi, you're sinning with a high hand against God. And there's part of you maybe that feels like there's no going back based on what I've done. I have, I have crossed some invisible line of demarcation. I've committed some sin that's unforgivable. I have cast my lot. There is no going back after I've done that. Well, there was for Levi. Jesus called you. There, there is no unforgivable sin if you turn and follow Jesus. There, there, there is no uh, line you can cross that Christ's grace doesn't pursue after you. He loves you, right? He, he desires for you to follow him even as he desired for Levi to follow him. But it's not just the immoral part of Levi, it's also the worldly part of him that I want you to think about. You know, we, we look at Levi and we sort of forget, you know, Israel in, national, in international standing was down here and Rome was up here, right? Levi had made the jump to go from leaving behind the backwaters of Galilee to, to align himself with the great powers of Rome. So, Some of you guys know people like this, or maybe you sort of hold these views, I used to be religious, and then I grew up. I, I, I used to believe in God, but then I went and saw the wider world. I, I, used, to care, I used to believe those, those Bible stories, but then I moved on to, to more abstract philosophy. Right? And we kind of think sometimes, uh, is, there any, is there any coming back from that? Well, there was for Levi, right? Even in the midst of his worldliness, Jesus finds him and calls him to return to him. None of us have have gone past the point intellectually or worldliness-wise or cosmopolitan, uh, in a cosmopolitan way, past where Jesus' call can bring us to him. Levi also is an example for us of wealth, right? The scriptures are full of warnings that the love of money can drive out the love of God. that it is the love of money which can be the root of all kinds of evil. And that certainly plays out in Levi's story. Proverbs 31 warns us that for the rich man, there is a temptation to say, what what do I need God for? And yet in the midst of his wealth and in his greed and in his self-reliance or seeming self-reliance, Levi still sees the call of Jesus in his life. Some of you may be in his shoes in that way or you know someone in their shoes where you think, why would they ever need God? They have all the things of this world. And yet Levi is an example of comfort that Christ offers what this world can't offer. And then the last way I'd like you to look at Levi is being despised and being alienated. We'll see in a minute when Levi gathers his friends together, the only friends he has are other tax collectors. He was alienated from his family, no doubt, and from his community and from his region. We see that in the Pharisees' response to him. And yet, even in being despised, he's not despised by God. Some people, uh, maybe in our community, maybe some of you here or people you know or people you interact with this week, are are so wounded by the world and feel so cut off from relationships that it seems impossible that Jesus could get in. And yet he got in for Levi, he can get in anywhere. Well, this passage, I hope, is a comfort to you, but it's also a convicting passage when we flip the lens, right? We go from looking at ourselves like Levi and saying, Jesus loves you, he wants to come after you. And then we look at the other character in the story, the Pharisees. And we see that the Pharisees so often reflect the hearts of religious people in Jesus' day and in our day. People who who aren't so enthusiastic about uh, Jesus inviting a tax collector to be his disciple. And I think it's worth asking the question, at least it is for me, maybe it's for you. Is some of that in my blood? Is that some of that in my eyes? Is some of that in how I treat other people? Uh, let's look at how they respond in verse 15. As he reclined at table in his house, probably referring to Matthew's house. I love this scene, and this is one of those ones from the Gospels that I wish we could be at together to see what happens when a bunch of tax collectors try to hold a worship service. I don't, I don't know. What do you do? I guess we just have a party. Like I don't know. I don't know any of the songs. I don't know any of the readings. I guess we'll just come. I I guess we'll just drink. Let's just have Jesus over, and we'll just drink with him because that's all we kind of know how to do. Um, And one commentator pointed out that this is really a, a sign of Jesus making sure that we don't miss the point. Like, if we just heard about one tax collector following Jesus, we might think that Jesus found the one virtuous tax collector out there and that Matthew was the one tax collector with a heart of gold. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells a story of one town he heard of that erected a statue to the one honest tax collector. And maybe we'd be tempted to think, well, maybe that's what Jesus did. He found the one honest tax collector and, you know, the exception proves the rule and those people are terrible. No, no, no. Jesus said, like, Bring me all the tax collectors. Let's get let's get them all, let's get all the drug dealers together. Right? Let's get all the payday loan people together. Let's let's bring them all into one room, because there is no one beyond my grace and my love. Now, I don't mean to be questioning Jesus, but I do wonder, don't the Pharisees have a point here? Like, isn't the old testament kind of full of warnings that the people you spend your time with are going to become the sort of person that you are? Right? Isn't that what Psalm 1 says when it says, blessed is the man who does not sit in the counsel of the wicked? Right? Isn't that what Jesus is doing here? Or aren't the Proverbs right when they talk about being careful of who you spend time with? Isn't that what you would say to your kids? Like, bad company corrupts good morals. Be careful who you spend... Hopefully you don't say that because you don't sound like you're from the 19th century. But... Um, <laughs> You care who your kids are friends with. You care who you're friends with. You're you're aware that we rub off on each other. We're social people. That's why you're here at church, after all, is is to try to be influenced in some meaningful way by these relationships. Don't the Pharisees have a point that that Jesus should be aware that if he's going to spend time with greedy people, maybe he'll become more greedy too? Okay, yes. But do you think for a second the Pharisees were concerned about Jesus' character and where it was going? That wasn't the root of their concern. Their concern was... What's gonna happen when people find out that, that these people get to be part of the front of the line? Uh, what's gonna to happen to our reputation? We've worked so hard to be seen as the leaders, and now you're just letting anyone in here, right? For the Pharisees, their concern is not about what's gonna to happen to Jesus, but what's gonna to happen to them. It's really necessary to take Jesus' words here seriously if we wanna be Jesus' disciples, right? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. No one says, I feel great today. I think I'm gonna to go to the doctor. Right? That's, we go to the beach, not the doctor. Uh, what Jesus is saying here is that he wants us to realize that it's only the, the awareness of our sin that's gonna drive us to him. If we see his offer of eternal life, his offer of being part of the kingdom of God uh, as, as a great hope, something that we couldn't achieve on our own, then we'll see its value. But if we think, no, I'm good on my own, then we'll never feel like we need Jesus. Uh, Paul talks about this self-righteousness and sort of our awareness of our sin as a spiritual discipline in 1 Timothy 1, when he says, this saying is deserving of full acceptance that Christ came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Have you ever thought about yourself in that way? Christ came to save sinners and I'm the foremost sinner that he came to save. Now, I don't mean that you're the worst person in the world, as the internet likes to talk about. I'm not even interested in ranking ourselves against each other. But to be aware that, that the reason Christ came was not for those terrible people out there, but for terrible people like me in here. Now, this, self, this, sense, this theme of self-righteousness comes out again in the second paragraph of this passage when the Pharisees question Jesus about fasting. And the question on the surface kind of sounds innocent enough. They say, you know... Other, other religious people don't fast, Why, why don't you fast? But there's an embedded assumption underneath there that I want to explain for a second. And, and it comes out in Matthew's Gospel. When Matthew uh, records it that Jesus said, the, "The disciples of the Pharisees, when they fast, they want everyone to know." And so the question that the Pharisees are asking here has an assumption behind it. that's, we should know whether you're fasting. you should should make it really clear to everyone that you're engaging in some meaningful spiritual discipline, that you're abstaining from food in order to call on God to bring the kingdom. And everyone should know whenever you do that. What's what's behind that pattern of behavior? It's self-aggrandizement. It's showing off. It's wanting people to see how religious you are. This all comes out of a heart of self-righteousness. It's intended not to be an act of humility, which fasting at its core is meant to be, to be aware of our limits and what we can't do and what God can do, but instead it become an act of hubris. Um, Just real quick on fasting. Fasting is the intentional abstention of something that's necessary for life for a period of time, to be reminded of what is ultimately most important in the world. Usually people abstain from food, that's the most common source of fasting, but you could abstain from other things that are necessary for life. When people tell me they're going on a Facebook fast, I say, "Well." I didn't know that was necessary for life, but I'm glad, you, if it is necessary for your life, I'm glad you're quitting it, because that's, something's gone wrong there. Um, I would say, just personally, I am not great at fasting. It is a spiritual discipline that I need to grow in, I'm trying to grow in, um, but I'm, I'm probably going to have a snack during this sermon. Like, I'm not, I'm not good at it. Um, maybe some of you can help me grow in that area. But, you can replace fasting in this context with, with other spiritual disciplines because the question isn't so much about the abstention from food as it is that pattern of life of self-righteousness. Jesus tells uh, those who are listening to him, that his disciples and the Pharisees' disciples, that really um, this is meant to be a time of joy. The Messiah is here and he unveils their assumption. See, the Pharisees fasted primarily, or their argument was, we're fasting because we want God to send the Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm here. So, why are you fasting? And it's a really convicting question for them. Are they really fasting for the kingdom of God? Or are they fasting because they like people to know how spiritual they are? It's a question of self righteousness, of of revealing the heart. Fasting is an act of anticipation, it's expecting a full appetite, longing for something to satisfy. And, And Jesus is the satisfaction that they say they're fasting for. But really, what they're longing for is the approval of their peers and the admiration of their neighbors. Now, I'm not trying to kick the Pharisees. I'm trying to convict myself and all of us because isn't that so often creep into your spiritual lives? Wanting people to, to notice that you have the right answer at Life Group or notice uh, how uh, faithful you are in church attendance or in service, how tempted we can be to have people know what we've done or what people say about us. Right? These things can creep into all of our spiritual lives. And so when we read this passage about the Pharisees and their self-righteousness, I hope that it convicts your heart even as it convicts mine. Um, By the way, because we're not going to get a chance to come back to fasting in this series, it's worth asking, like, so should we practice fasting as a Christian spiritual discipline? It only comes up a couple times in the New Testament, and both times are kind of in this awkward way where, uh, in Matthew, Jesus warns against fasting so people can see, but then he says, but when you fast do it so that people don't know, which kind of assumes that we're going to. And then here he says, well, they don't fast now, but they'll fast later. And you're, you kind of wonder, like, well, is that, like, is that now that we're supposed to be fasting? And Christians have come to really different conclusions over this, over the history of the church. Um, I guess here would be my, my pastoral guidance for you. Um, based on this passage, since fasting is meant to help us anticipate the coming of Jesus, if that's something that you really need help with, that in your own sort of heart, in your own spiritual life, you're aware that you kind of forget about God a lot. You forget about Jesus' presence a lot. Fasting can be really helpful in that because hunger has a way of reminding us of its presence very often. So fasting can be really helpful. Now, if you're prone to uh, demonstrations of your piety, if you just kind of know your heart, and when you start fasting, your wife's going to hear about it, your kids are going to hear about it, people on Facebook are going to hear about it, Maybe let's lay that aside until we work on the self-righteousness problem. That'd be my guidance. Um, which, to be honest, that's, that's, that's what I struggle with. So, so that'd be more my, my wrestling. Um, all right. I want to I wanna answer one question here. I, I've been using the word sinner a lot in this sermon, which I don't use that word a ton, but, but it comes up in this passage a lot. So we've been talking about seeing ourselves as sinners. And some of you might say, Bob, I really don't like that term. I don't like seeing myself that way. I don't like seeing other people that way. It sounds really judgmental. It sounds very harsh. Um, It sounds unchristian. Like I I, I see myself as someone who's loved by God. I see other people as people loved by God. Why would it be helpful to see myself as a sinner? You know, Christ has come to save sinners of which I'm the foremost. That just sounds very sort of in a way I don't like. It just doesn't sit right with me. Uh, How do you sort of respond to that? Um, Well, a couple things. Now, as, as some of you come out of religious traditions where there was a lot of harshness, where you were sort of berated with this term and made to feel like a terrible person all the time. And for you, yeah, maybe it is good to, to sort of set that term to the side for a while and focus on Christ's redeeming work in your life. But for a lot of us, the reason we don't like that term is because we kind of struggle with self-righteousness the same way as the Pharisees. And it's worth asking the question, is the term sinner the problem or is the problem... Uh, that we, we don't like the idea that Christ has come to save us. We don't like the idea that, that we're in need of a savior. Let me, let me respond to this question with a question. What would you replace it with? Would you replace the idea that you're a sinner with the idea that I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay? Because with that's gonna come a tremendous weight of anxiety if you realize you're not okay. You're gonna have to hide and pretend and, and act like there's nothing to forgive when you know in your core there is. Or are you going to replace the idea that you're a sinner with an attestation of how religious you are, or how much you've you've covered up those things, or trying to pretend that you have things more together than you are? There's a tremendous freedom with saying, Christ came to save sinners, of which I'm the foremost. There's a freedom of of recognizing what's real and true about your heart and your actions and what you've left undone, and about what Christ has done in coming to save you. my goal isn't to get you to use one word or, or, or one phrase to describe yourself, but, but to see yourself as Christ sees you, as someone who has broken the law that God has given, not just once, but shattered it into a thousand pieces like Levi. And yet he has come to save you and to be near to you. All right, last couple minutes here, I want to talk about uh, the third perspective of, of Jesus' view on this passage. You know, when we see ourselves as Levi, we see the, the comfort of Christ coming to save sinners. When we see ourselves as the Pharisees, we see that sort of conviction that comes when we realize that, that we're included in that sinner label, in that sinner category, and that the church is gonna include people that, that maybe we're uncomfortable with because it includes people like us, too. The third category is when we see ourselves as following in Jesus' footsteps, these words are a challenge. Jesus' model is a challenge. After all, what Jesus does is the invitation for what we're gonna do, right? If he's gonna come and be close to people like Levi, then you and I should go and be close to people like Levi. If Jesus is gonna invite people like Levi in and go into their homes and eat with them, then then he's gonna challenge us to do the same thing. This passage is an invitation to follow in Jesus' way of life, to to spend time with people that the world doesn't value or the world's rejected or the world sees as beyond the care of God. The Pharisees object to Jesus' party with tax collectors and sinners in large part because they have a view of humanity that says there are good people over there and there are bad people over there. And the good people and the bad people should never mix. Well, the problem with that is that the Pharisees squarely put themselves in the category of the good people. And let's be honest, we often do the same thing with ourselves. The reality is that, that if Jesus had only eaten with people who were not sinners, he would have been eating by himself. He would have been very lonely at the lunch table, right? Anyone that Jesus would have had a meal with that day would have been a sinner, whether they were a Pharisee or a tax collector, right? That All of us are in the same boat before God. So let me ask you, who do you spend time with? Who do you have lunch with? And how do you respond to to the idea that, that Christ models a life of moving towards people that make us uncomfortable, For Jesus, this is an invitation to follow him, to follow him into relationships with people that, from the world's perspective, look like they'll never follow God. And yet, that's exactly the sort of people that Jesus went after. Um, All right, a couple questions as we close here. Uh, What do I want you to do? I'd love for you to do a prayer project this week where you read through this passage and you sort of take these three perspectives. The first perspective is the perspective of Levi. What, What would it be like for you to hear Jesus call you in the midst of your deepest shame or sin and see you in that moment. For Levi, he's at the tax booth. Maybe for you, it's some other sin that you're really ashamed of. Or some, whether it's something that happened in the past or something that sort of perpetually happens. And just to see Jesus find you in that moment and call you to follow him. Not, not to indulge that sin forever, but, but to see you in that moment and still love you and call you to follow him. I hope that brings tremendous comfort as you sort of imagine that scene, to have the authority saying, you belong with me, you belong here. There's no need to apologize, to hide, or pretend. You belong here. If Jesus said you can come, you can come. By the way, that's the heart of our church, right? If Jesus said that you matter to him, that you belong to him, and he did, then you belong to us, right? You belong here. You don't have to apologize if, if you feel like you don't fit into the mold or you don't blend in or whatever, like if you are a follower of Jesus, you belong here. And if you're not ready to decide to do that, to be a follower of Jesus, you still belong here. We're glad you're here. If you're curious or you're, you're willing to participate, we're, we're glad you're part of the church family. All right, so take the lens of Levi. And then secondly, I'd love for you to take the lens of the Pharisees. What do you need to repent of? Like As you sort of hear their words rattling around in your mouth, like, What's he doing with them? What do you need to repent of? What does this reveal about your heart? Do you need to say, God, forgive me for assuming assuming I know better than you do who belongs. Forgive me for doubting that your call works on people that I don't see much hope for. Forgive me for being angry at you for your grace to other people. Forgive me for my fear or my selfishness as I see people that are very different than me uh, coming into your church. Maybe there's some some forgiveness or some repentance that you need to take action of uh, when you see the lens of the Pharisees. And then lastly, and I say this with a lot of reverence, uh, read through this passage taking the perspective of Jesus. As you look at Levi, do you see him with disgust or with hope? Do you see him with anger or eyes of love? And then you might just ask, God, who are the Levi's in my world? Who are the people that you're calling me to eat with, to spend time with? And for all of us, it'll be different because you have different lives than I do and you have different networks than I do and different jobs than I do. Who are the people that, from the world's perspective, seem like they don't fit in, they don't belong? And, and who is Jesus calling you to move out towards this week? Well, my hope is that as a church, we'll be a place and a people uh, that are quick to include Levi, quick to, to believe that, that God's call works and is effective on people, and that delight in seeing tax collectors, tax collectors and sinners, if I could put them in quotes, coming to know Jesus because those people are just like us, right? We all have that same story. We've all sinned against a holy God and been forgiven by the great Savior of Jesus Christ. If you ever feel like you're alienated or you don't fit in or you don't belong because of your past, just know neither did Levi and he wrote part of the Bible, right? Neither do we and we're all in this together. Uh, Let's close in prayer. God, I'm grateful for Levi's story. I'm grateful for the way that he models your grace at work. Um, God, a lot of us feel the need to hide when we come to church, to hide our past, to hide our present, to hide our fears or our our, um, our actions. God, I pray that um, by your grace we can come out of hiding and follow you. God, God I also pray uh, for the Pharisee-like tendency in so many of us, uh, the, the fear that um, that if people saw our lack of performance or, or saw us... Um, as, as needing grace, that they would think less of us. God, I pray that we would lay that down and follow you with joy. God, I pray for my friends who are here um, who carry the stories of people they love deeply and uh, they, they feel like there's not much hope for them with you. They, they feel like they've walked away from you. God, I pray that this passage would give them a tremendous source of hope that your call is effective. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.